welcome to chapter 69 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. What does an imperial power do when it has lost an empire? Well, for the world power that was Britain in the 18th century, the answer was obvious. It would build a new one. One of the ways the process worked was to turn up in a country regarded as undiscovered, plant a flag and claim the land in the name of your king. Undiscovered, in this context, has a special meaning. It means unvisited by people with white skins speaking a European language and professing Christianity. It doesn't mean literally undiscovered, since anywhere inhabited by humans has already been discovered if it's outside the cradle of mankind in Africa. If that kind of place was inhabited at all, it was by people the white, European, professedly Christian explorers regarded as heathen savages. As I'm sure you'll have guessed, these are people who speak non-European languages, whose skins are black or brown, and who haven't embraced the Christian faith, specifically not the faith as practised in the sect of their new masters. Above all, they haven't achieved the level of civilization that comes with the invention of gunpowder, and when they kill the people they disagree with, they use barbaric methods like knives instead of the civilized forms of execution of the European 18th century, including hanging, burning, or indeed hanging, drawing, and quartering, which combines hanging and burning with some smart knife work in between to disembowel the victim. The best known of the British explorers of the time was Captain James Cook. He was a remarkable man and quite an innovator. During long voyages at sea, many of which could last months, one of the great scourges of his time was scurvy, the disease we now know was caused by vitamin C deficiency. During the Seven Years' War, of the nearly 185,000 sailors enlisted in the Royal Navy, over 133,000 died of disease, the majority due to scurvy. The disease killed more British sailors in the 18th century than naval combat ever did. Eventually the problem would be solved by giving British sailors lemon juice and later lime juice, hence the nickname Limeys for Brits, but Cook beat it by feeding his sailors sauerkraut. That fine Germanic dish isn't to everyone's taste, and it wasn't to that of many of his sailors but its rich vitamin C content protected them. He was also a keen user of John Harrison's chronometer. Remember we talked about that in chapter 55, of which he said that our error in longitude can never be great so long as we have so good a guide. He discovered both the east coast of Australia and New Zealand, as well as a bunch of Pacific islands. He was killed by the heathen savages of Hawaii, demonstrating that a spear thrust could leave you just as dead as a shot driven by gunpowder. As well as claiming new lands, Britain could also build on some pretty impressive territories it already held. This was particularly true in India, even though there those holdings weren't actually part of the British Empire. In an echo of what often happens in our own times, Britain had outsourced its imperial rule in India to a private corporation. That's the one we've come to know and love, the East India Company. 
When new territory was gained by conquest, the rule was that Britain took direct control of it. But, technically, there hadn't been a British conquest in India. The Mughal emperor was left theoretically in possession, and the East India Company was simply administering some of his territory for him. Not always terribly well, you'll remember that there'd been an appalling famine in Bengal in 1770, just a few years after the East India Company took control. The company was clearly in the private sector, but its affairs were closely associated with government. Why, it could only trade by virtue of holding a charter issued by the state. It paid money to the public purse, and when things were good at least, was a ready source of finance if the government needed it. When things weren't so good, it turned to the government for support for itself, often arguing in terms that are only too familiar to us today. For instance, in 1784, with its finances once more in a dire state, the company turned to the government for a bailout, amazingly so that it could pay a dividend. In other words, it was asking for public money to pay private shareholders. The chairman explained to the House of Commons that if this were not possible, he would not be answerable for the consequences. The news would soon reach Holland and the government need not be told what would follow. The reminder was to a previous crisis in the company's affairs when, you may remember, the difficulties had triggered banking collapses in Britain that had spread to Holland and then across Europe. Yes, this is the refrain we've come to know only too well today. Too big to fail. Still, scandals about the consequences of abuses in India, of which the famine had been the worst, forced the company to take action. It appointed Warren Hastings to be, in effect, the first Governor-General of its Indian operations. In passing, let me pay credit to Nick Robbins and his book, which I've quoted before, The Corporation That Changed the World, on which I've drawn heavily for this episode. He points out that the directors instructed Hastings to act leniently, but send more money. Unfortunately, the two objectives were incompatible you may not be surprised to learn that he focused on the money. There were some neat devices. For instance, Hastings put an end to some of the private enterprises run by company staff in India. That gave the company itself a monopoly in those sectors. In the salt trade, for instance, producers were only allowed to sell to the company, which quickly drove the prices it paid down and the prices it charged up. That guaranteed abject poverty for the producers and good profits for the company. The system remained in place until the end of British rule in India in 1947. The company used its monopoly status to pull off the same trick in another even more important area, opium production. Again, it cut prices paid to peasants while maintaining excellent sale prices to its clients. In the pursuit of new clients, Hastings even sent two ships to China to sell that prohibited product there. The company back in London reacted with horror and banned further shipments. So it stopped shipping opium to China itself, preferring to sell it instead to private traders who did the dirty contraband work on its behalf. It did license those traders for the business, though, and the chests of opium still carried the company logo. 
Remember the recent scandal about Purdue Pharma promoting the sale of opiates in the US? Back then, it was the British East India Company pushing sales of opium to China. There's not much that's truly new under the sun. In the 1780s, there were more famines in India, if not quite on the scale of 1770. There were revolts too, as well as wars with local rulers, finally crushed before Hastings headed home in 1785. Remember, though, that the company chairman had been begging for a bailout in 1784. The impoverishment of overexploited lands in India and the years of constant military expenditure there had precipitated yet another crisis in the company's affairs. Indeed, it had even begun to lease space on its ships to its own staff, who still had plenty of private ventures of their own, to carry their goods back to Britain. That was lousy business when the costs were taken into account, as it generated losses or minimal profits. But it led to something new. Where previously the company had been served by its staff, now the staff were being served by the company. Companies working in the interests of their executives instead of their shareholders? That too is hardly an unknown phenomenon today. Let's turn out an old friend, Edmund Burke. The last time he served in government was during the short-lived Fox North coalition. However, he wasn't going to let his huge energy go untapped in opposition. The East India Company was going to be his next cause and his mission, the impeachment of Warren Hastings. That meant a vote to impeach in the House of Commons and then a trial by the House of Lords sitting as a court. Burke had little hope of winning his case. Early on, he described getting Hastings convicted as a thing we all know to be impracticable. But he saw the issue of one of universal morality, the kind of ethical principles that applied in all times and all places, and he pressed on if only to make the cause visible to the world and ensure it was remembered by posterity. The laws of morality, he argued, are the same everywhere, and there is no action which would pass for an act of extortion, of peculation, of bribery and oppression in England, that is not an act of extortion, of peculation, of bribery and oppression in Europe, Asia, Africa and the world over. With the Pitt government at least quiescent, Burke won his case in the Commons and the Lord's trial began in 1788. It would last seven years, but in an extremely sporadic manner, with only 149 days of sittings over that entire period. To be fair, the articles of impeachment hadn't been well drawn up, but in any case, with a lot of money at stake, as well as Britain's imperial ambitions, it was inevitable, as Burke had foreseen, that he would lose. Hastings was acquitted. The first step to empire is revolution, Burke had proclaimed early in the process. The British presence in India had meant a revolution in the Mughal Empire, overthrowing the foundations on which it rested. Burke owes his reputation as a conservative to his later denunciation of the revolution in France, but, in general, he loathed any change that implied the overthrow of structures that had proved themselves through time. 
What the East India Company had done in India was therefore deeply shameful and needed to be denounced, even though he couldn't persuade the British authorities to reverse it. Adam Smith, whose Wealth of Nations we talked about last time, had argued that this kind of outcome was all but inevitable when a commercial enterprise sets out to be a government, or using his terms, when merchants become sovereigns. The interest of the merchant is a quick profit. The interest of the sovereign is the long-term growth and prosperity of the country. When, as sovereigns, they also hold a monopoly, merchants are likely to be driven by their professional interests rather than those of the nation they rule. Their mercantile habits draw them, Smith maintained, almost necessarily, although perhaps insensibly, to prefer, upon all ordinary occasions, the little and transitory profit of the monopolist to the great and permanent revenue of the sovereign. As sovereigns, their interest is exactly the same with that of the country which they govern. As merchants, their interest is directly opposite to that interest. Even so, please don't imagine that men like Burke opposed the British presence in India altogether. On the contrary, they saw the country's imperial role as its mission. What they denounced was the abusive way it was being managed. One figure, however, did speak out against Britain's imperial pretensions in the subcontinent. George Dempster feared, given the terrible experience in America, that India was likely to work out just as badly. He became a director of the East India Company and, when that didn't enable him to change the course of events, resigned and got himself into the House of Commons. There, astonishingly, he spoke up for the independence of India, even before it was officially an imperial possession. I now conjure ministers to abandon all ideas of sovereignty in that quarter of the world, for it would be wiser to make some one of the native princes king of the country and leave India to itself. However, a country once infected with imperial aspirations finds them hard to abandon voluntarily. Words like Dempster's weren't what Brits wanted to hear. For better or for worse, the second British Empire was going to be built, and India would be its brightest jewel. I leave it to you as an exercise for next time to decide which of the better or the worse was likely to predominate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>